challenges you think they don't understand and then all of a sudden they, they're sitting there explaining to you things that you never thought they could, they could explain to you. And for others, we simply don't have any assurance of what they can or what they cannot discern. And ladies and gentlemen, the answer this morning is going to take some thinking. But my hope is that what we are going to look at this morning is true to God's revealed word. And so let me say this from the outset. What I'm about to share is very personal with many people in this room and many people that will listen to me on our podcast. There are a lot of emotions with these questions. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of feelings. When emotions, ladies and gentlemen, come with emotions, I'm sorry, comes care and concern for the hearts of everyone. But what we need to be cautious in, and especially in our emotionally saturated culture, is that we cannot let our emotions get in the way of what is true. In other words, I can't allow my feelings to dictate what is true. As difficult as whatever the truth may be, or as beautiful as whatever the truth may be, I can't allow my feelings to get in the way of that. Now, I will say this. The Bible is definitely not silent on this question. However, the Bible doesn't directly answer the question for us either. So I think when we look at the answer to this question that we are about to dive into, it's not a passage that we're looking at. It's a paradigm by which we have to look through. So it's not a passage to look at, it's a paradigm to look through. In order to do that, we're going to have to lay some groundwork. We cannot and we ought not in our attempt to bring clarity to a difficult situation to then therefore bring ambiguity to the clear teachings of Scripture. Let me say it again. We ought not and we cannot bring uh, in an attempt to bring clarity to a difficult situation, bring ambiguity to that which is clear. We must make the main things the plain things, or the plain things the main things, and the main things the plain things. Are you all with me? Because what happens is, oftentimes in our attempt to escape certain realities, or to not deal with certain truths, we then make that which is very clear in the scriptures more ambiguous. If we do that, if we attempt to bring clarity to difficult situations by bringing ambiguity to the clear teachings of scripture, let me say this, it would be best and better for us to remain silent. That is an option. As you will see in a few moments, I will share that with you. That is an option on how we are going to deal with this question. Just remain silent. So I want to get at this a paradigm as we will work out our salvation now with fear and with trembling. So I'm going to start by affirming three absolute core truths that we cannot get away from. Truth number one. No one is innocent before God. 
no one is innocent before God. Not you, not me, not an infant, not a disabled person. No one is innocent before God. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible declares that because of Adam's sin, all of humanity is subject to death, futility, and condemnation. The Bible dictates that Adam's sin, and we're going to look at a, verse, a couple verses here in a few minutes that, that I want to read through. Adam's sin was imputed to his offspring, which means that God sees Adam's sin and the guilt of that sin and imputes it to all of his offspring, which includes all of humanity. Why? Because all of humanity was in Adam. So God imputes Adam's sin to all of us, and his offspring, his, his people, his humanity, we reflect that by sinning. Okay? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Let me quote the Baptist Confession, which is very interesting to us here, and I want to quote it from you directly. Quote, listen to the words. I thought this was interesting. By the way, this is a confession that the Baptists have confessed for uh, thousands of years now. Uh, 1689 is when this is written. So I want you to listen to the words and listen to the, uh, and, and I want you to pay particular attention to what we're talking about here with re in regards to disability. Here it is, quote, from this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and who wholly incline to all evil, do proceed actual, all actual transgression. Unquote. So let me say it again. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgression. Did you notice the word that was used here in the, in the confession, that we are all therefore what? Disabled. You see, ladies and gentlemen, here is the truth. We are born in sin, and therefore, therefore we default to sin, requiring us, requiring us to be worthy of God's righteous judgment. We, according to Ephesians, we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature hostile in our minds and in our thinking. Therefore, we are all disabled and in need of redemption, which is the only way, which, which by the way, is only in the person and the work of Jesus. Okay? That's the, that's the first core statement. No one is innocent before God. Let's work through some passages together, and then we're going to come to statement number two. You don't have to turn to all these if you don't want. If you're writing and taking notes, you're more than welcome to do that. I want to start in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 5. And I'm going to go through these quickly without waiting for everybody to join me. So um, it's sword drill, y'all. Um, and if you can't stay with me, just write them down. Psalm 51, verse 5. The psalmist says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. I was brought forth... In iniquity. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. 
verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Romans chapter 5. Verses 12 through 19. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. I know I'm reading a lot here, but stick with me. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Praise God for his glory and his grace. Amen? The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from, the transgress, from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who have received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then... As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will, become, will be made righteous. We can't get away from this idea of the fact that we were born in sin and that we have transgressed. Romans chapter 8 verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also may be set free from slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation has been subjected to futility. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 21, beginning in verse 20, excuse me. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And lastly, Ephesians Chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We have to start here. No one is innocent 
before God. Now this, for us, from a Christian worldview, leaves us at a very desperate situation, yes? But we cannot remove the very clear teachings of scriptures with this in order to provide clarity in another space. So, the first thing we're going to have to do with whatever we do in this situation is we're going to have to deal with this idea that no one is innocent before God. No one. Let's go to point number two. Although no one is innocent before God, I have good news that God is sovereign in salvation. Amen. All the churches say amen. God is sovereign in salvation. There could be another point here, but for the sake of brevity, what I want to say is we as Christians believe that all of us are an eternal soul. We are all eternal souls. We will all live forever, either under damnation due to the righteous judgment of God because none of us are innocent, and in that judgment we are separated from God for eternity, or we are an eternal soul who will live forever in the presence of God, communing with Him with eternal joy and eternal life. Church, salvation alone belongs to our God alone. From eternity past, He proposes to save sinners through Jesus by the power of His Holy Spirit from all over the world. God foreknows and God predestines us who believe according to His will to be holy and blameless before Him to the praise of His glorious grace. Salvation comes only in and only through the work of Jesus Christ. Remember this. If we participate in our salvation, it sets us up for an entire new string of challenges theologically and especially in regards to this. God is sovereign in salvation. I've already made some of you mad, but that's okay because I'm going to show you in Scripture. Let's turn with me to Psalms chapter 3, verse 8. Because the reason I say that I made some of you mad, or I would make some of you mad, is because we have an idea in our culture that we can save ourselves. Now, we don't say it like that because we know that would be wrong, but we, we, we live as though that is true. Psalm chapter 3, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be upon your people, Selah. Who does salvation belong to? The Lord, chapter 16, verse 1. Psalm, chapter 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good beside you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who are, have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I will not pour out their drink offering of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. God alone is able to be our refuge. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 
verse 34. And then the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, what? From the foundation of the world. John chapter 5 verse 28. We'll start in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. Here we go. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of death. I can do nothing of my on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Speaking of Jesus. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other, other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Romans chapter 8. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among, firstborn among the brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I mean, sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 9. And he's talking about those who will, he will deal retribution out to. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. 2 Timothy 1.9 Verse starting in, I'm sorry, 1 8. Let's start in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Are y'all getting the point? I don't think you are. I'm going to keep going. Tim, Titus. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You might be asking, what does that have to do with anything I said? Because remember, I told you from all over the world, right? He was going to save a people from all over the world. God is sovereign in salvation to people all over the world. Chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every tribe and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robe and palm branches were in the hand, and cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Chapter 14. I'm almost done. You're probably guessing that because we're almost at the end of this Bible. And I've probably read the whole thing now. Chapter 14, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Chapter 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. No one is innocent before God. And God is sovereign in salvation. These are two primary 
pillars by which I'm about to filter all that we're about to say in regards to this theology regarding salvation of those with cognitive disabilities. Do you have those two down? Good. Number three. Number three. God's means of salvation is by grace through faith. God's means of salvation is by grace through faith. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not justified before God by the works of the law. We are justified before God by faith. Faith itself is a gift of God's grace. So faith is not earned by us. Faith is freely given to us. This is huge. This is enormously important to all that we're about to dictate and go through. We will study this in detail in the weeks to come. Starting next week, we're going to start a six-week series on the five solos. How did I do that? Because I'm just like that. I'm good like that, right? Six on five. One's going to be an overview, just for the record. Then we're going to dive into five. But this is what we're going to study for the next six weeks in our five solos passage. It is essential. If faith is a work of ours then I would say this brings many, many challenges to this idea of those with cognitive disability. Because if faith is something that I have to work in, then how does one who have cognitive incapacities or disabilities have faith? Yet we believe we are provided a faith, which, by the way, a faith by grace, through faith, that takes, oh, this is good news, are you ready? That takes the imputed sin of Adam and imputes the righteousness of God in, of God in Christ Jesus to us. Oh, good news. This is why they call it the gospel, good news. We believe we are provided a faith which takes the imputed sin of, right, of Adam and imputes the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus to us. John chapter 3, verse 16. I don't hear many pages turning. I'm guessing y'all have this one memorized. John chapter, praise God. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here's what, here's what happens with a certain segment. That whoever, see whoever. Whoever. Whoever what? Believes. We're not universalists. Not everybody goes to heaven. But only those who believe goes to heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, I've told you this. From the get-go, belief is the verbal form of faith. Faith is a noun. Belief is a verb. Pistuo and pistis. It's a verbal form of the word of faith. So when it says believe, it is meaning faith. What is it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him, namely his son, will not perish but have everlasting life. Romans chapter 3. This is going to be a section here. I ain't afraid to read. Romans chapter 3, 
We're going to begin in verse 22. <clears throat> well, let's begin in verse 21. Have I read this already? <laughs> Liar. I have not read this. I will call you out. If you call me out, I'm going to call you out. See? Wicked from birth, I'm telling you, kids. I'm just showing you. No one is innocent before God. Here we go. John chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And you need to listen to this very carefully. If you've got to shut your eyes and pray about it, do it. But listen. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, are you listening? Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God publicly display, I'm sorry, displayed publicly as a propitiation, which means payment, in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? What kind of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God will, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Romans chapter 10. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe, believe, verbal form of faith, in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Beginning in verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. And lastly, Ephesians chapter 2. 
We've already read verses 1 through 7, I believe. Let's pick up in verse 8. Uh, no, let's, I think we did 1 through 3. Let's pick up in verse 4. Right? We were at wrath even as the rest. That's what point 1 said. No one is innocent before God. Let's pick up in verse 4 because this is the gospel. But God, but God, oh, that's good. But God, listen, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that. What is that? That salvation Faith, faith, and that, that faith is not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me break it down for you. Ain't none of you going to stand before God and says, God, look at what I did for you. Ain't none of us going to stand before God and go, but God, you know, I did this, I did that, I did that. From faith to works, ain't none of us going to stand before him and give that. Because remember what Jesus said, not all who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But didn't we do this and this and this and this in your name? Yes. And then Jesus is going to look at them and say what? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. You see, that's the problem in the modern day church. We need to pray for England. I heard they lost their queen which is tragedy. I mean, the death of anyone is tragic. How many of you were invited to the family? How many of you were invited to the family funeral of the queen? Not the, not the general viewing. I'm talking about the family funeral. How many of you? How many of you? Anybody? Let me ask this. How many of y'all know the queen? How many of y'all know of the queen? Raise your hand if you know of the queen. You know who Queen Elizabeth, you know her? Yeah, yeah, good. Because you know her, did it get you invited? What was required for you to be invited to that? She had to know you. And the problem is, many, many, many people are walking around today with an assurance of salvation because they know about Jesus. But they've never been saved by Jesus. They've never had the grace of God. And the reason so many people in the church, just for the record, are so nasty and ugly and mean and crass and cruel, the reason that is is because they've never been saved. They're unregenerate people sitting in a pew. Just because I wear a LeBron jersey doesn't make me LeBron. No more than being in a, no more than being in a, 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 a garage makes me a car. And that's the problem. 
That's the problem with many of you in this room. The reason you can't experience the joy of salvation is because you've never been saved. But I know God. I didn't ask that. The question is not whether you know God. Does God know you? Have you been saved? Have you been, have you been taken over by the grace of God? That just turned in a direction I wasn't expecting. But that was good. Three Three lenses, three truths we must affirm. No one is innocent before God. I can't get rid of that. Number two, God is sovereign in salvation. Praise God, I can't get rid of that. And number three, God's means of salvation is by grace through faith, and I can't get rid of that. So with these three essentials, I want us to look at some options that have been provided with the question that is before us. How do non-cognitive disabled people come to salvation? Whether they be infants, whether they be mentally retarded, whether they be unable to cognitively understand, whatever it is, how do they experience salvation? Here are some options. First option, all non-cognitive people are bound for hell due to the fact that they are born in sin and incapable of faith. Now listen to me, I know some of you right now are going, hold on, hold on, but that is an option. You have to accept that as an option. And it was one of my favorite preachers, one of the preachers that I have listened to and I've read and I love 99.9% of his stuff. By the way, this is why nobody can ever call me an ists or an anything because I read all these guys and I find problems in them at all. And I'm pretty sure y'all are going to read stuff and you're going to find problems. That's why you're not a Donnieist, right? Because you're going to read stuff and you're going to go, oh, no. Right? So number one, hell is, hell is due to the fact that they are all born in sin and incapable of faith. Therefore, all non-cognitive purpose, per- people go to hell. That is an option. Second, Only those who are born to families of believers are saved. Only those who are born in families of believers are saved. It's this idea of of covenantal regeneration. That if your parents were believers, you're going to be saved because you were a believer. Because what they do is they take a fault. uh, That's an option. That's an option. That's option number one and option number two. I have not told you I hold to either of these options. I'm just giving you options. Option number three, only those individuals who are baptized as infants and are in the covenant are saved. So if you were baptized as an infant and you are in the covenant, therefore you are saved because you have been baptized as an infant. And again, one of my favorite preachers, my favorite preachers of all times, he actually believed in this. His name was Jonathan Edwards. This is actually what he said. The road to hell is paved with the skull of unbaptized babies. So the fact that a baby... Now, if this is true, by the way, if this is in any way true, pedo-baptism will become very attractive very quickly, does it not? And, and by the way, if, if we were to go back and we were to see some of this... This is what perpetuated in history, I'm not, I'm not saying anything other than what historical record shows, in history, this is one of the main things that perpetuated infant baptism into large acceptance inside of the church. 
It was because the mortality rate of children at death was unbelievably high, and believers were starting to question that the new church, church has just been saved, right? New church has just been, and they were beginning to ask, ask the question, well, what happens to our babies? And so pedo-baptism began to take on a huge role in around the 400s, 400 A.D., and I would agree if that is true. If only babies that are baptized are actually and in the covenant are saved, then pedo baptism becomes very attractive for the sake of progeny. And I believe historically it seems pedo baptism has grown from this. The road to hell is paved with the skulls of unbaptized babies. I do like what Chrysostom says, and some of y'all don't know who Chrysostom is, but Chrysostom says it's not the skulls of infants, but it's the skulls of priests. Dude had a way of talking, I'm telling you. Uh, thirdly, there is an agnostic view. And the agnostic view is this, simply we don't know. We don't know. Can I land here just for a second? And can I tell you as a church, it's okay to not know? You see, we live in a day in which we think we have to know everything. That's why so many of you are addicted to Facebook. So many of you are addicted to the news. is because you have a perpetual desire to know everything. You have FOMO. For those of you who don't know what FOMO is, it's an acronym, F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. And because you have the desire to be omniscient, you can't turn that thing off and just stick with the fact that there's some things you don't know. I was talking to a specialist one time, a person who had spent 15 years in college coming to specialize in one specific area, and he was one of the most arrogant men I've ever met. Because he had specialized in one area, he thought he knew everything in all areas. And I sat down with him, and I said, you ought to be the most humble man I've ever met. Because you know how much hard work it takes to be specialist in one area. It ought to make you stop and make you think that maybe I don't know everything about every other area that every other specialist knows. You see, there's a humility in it. And I want to say this to you. For those of you who sit and you would walk out of here and going, I just don't know. That's not a bad position. And why I say that, I, I, I don't think it's the best, obviously, because I'm about to tell you what I think. But I, I sit back and I look at it and I go, hey, where you are not clear, trust God. Trust God. Trust in who He is. So first, all co non-cognitive people are bound for hell. Second, only those who are born to families of believers are saved. Third, only those individuals who are baptized as infants are in the covenant are saved. Fourth, I think I had, yeah, fourth, there's an agnostic view, which simply means I don't know. And then fifth, and the view I hold to, is that God is good, and He saves those who are cognitively incapable of responding by faith, by His electing grace, through the measure of faith that He provides to them. God is good, and he saves those who are cognitively incapable of responding by faith by his electing grace. 
You know, when it comes to infants, and the reason I want to go to infants is because I believe that brings us back to kind of the bare necessity, if you will. When we come back to infants and we start looking at this, the, the Baptist confession of faith, again, is not silent in this. The Baptist confession of faith, which is inside of, it's in a chapter, this idea of what I'm about to read to you is in a chapter talking about soteriology, how, how are people saved. How, matter of fact, it's talking about God's grace. So if it is in uh, how are people saved, and if it, if it is by God's grace, then we start looking at it and we begin to ask ourselves, okay, uh, this, is the, this is the framework it, it speaks of, and this is what the Baptist Confession of Faith says. It says that elect infants, listen to what it says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who worketh when and where and how He pleases. So also are all elect persons who are capable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. So what did the people who wrote the confession, what are they saying? How are, baptized, how are infants saved? The same way we are saved. By grace, through faith. I want you to notice the writers in the second part make it clear that this is for us all. So the question that comes from this is, who are the elect children? That would be the question. And the question for us all are, who are the elect adults for that matter? Do we know who they are? I don't know who they are. That's not my call. That's God's business. So the best that we would be able to say, walking out of here is, that God will save those whom He will save, just like He does the adults. He will save those whom He will save. So acknowledging these things, that God's providence is always in keeping with His divine will, I want to now deal directly with the idea of cognition. Because this is where it gets sticky. What role does cognition play in salvation? What role does cognition play in salvation? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. Scripture clearly indicates that faith is demonstrated, very important word, faith is demonstrated through the capacity of cognition. A lot of people will say that uh, they'll, they'll talk about faith and a child needing to have faith, but faith is uh, in cognition, but for me, cognition tells me that faith is demonstrated through the cognition. But that doesn't get at it to me. I get that. Because I'm not asking what place does cognition play in the application of saving faith. I'm sorry. I am asking what, does, what place does cognition play in the application of saving faith, not the demonstration of saving faith. What role does cognition play, apply, uh, 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 apply in the application, applying faith to my life, not in the demonstrating of that, of, of that faith in my life. So, how, the question is, how do we receive Christ as our ultimate treasure? And we know that salvation comes by grace through faith. But Scripture indicates that this also comes through the mind and the heart. We read this. 
So, the means of salvation is when the gospel is proclaimed to those who supernaturally comprehend and they're able to receive the message. This is why those who are capable of comprehending through creation are without excuse. What we are addressing is those who are incapable of cognitively comprehending, those are without understanding. Those whose faith has no trust, no truth to trust in because they don't know what the truth is. Are you with me? I'm trying not to lose you here. I want us to consider a few passages. And we're going to work through a few of these. Um, one in particular. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Very important passage. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, so those who received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Now watch what he says. Who were born not of blood. What's next? Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But God. So here's an idea that we are born not of our blood, not because of our lineage. So that takes, to me, that takes out number two. It's not because my parents were saved. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. So we go back to our second point, right? That God is sovereign in salvation. Okay, okay, I'm getting it. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans, we're going to spend a little bit of time here in Romans. Romans chapter 1. Verses 18 through 20. This was our key passage. Now watch this because it's so important. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Oh. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those who are ungodly and unrighteousness because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So there is this idea that the wrath of God is equivalent to those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But we're talking about those who can't suppress the truth because they don't know what the truth is. Okay, that's interesting. We're going to come back to that. Turn with me to chapter 10. Many of you were there with me. Okay, so if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, here it is, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. But what happens if a person doesn't believe with their heart because they don't have the capacity to know the truth. Or what happens to a person who can't confess? By the way, just for the record, this is why many people back in the day used to believe that people who, because it will say that you must hear, 
So uh, verse 17 of chapter 10, 14 through 17, it says, uh, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is why many in the early church believed those who were deaf were incapable of salvation. Those who were deaf were incapable of salvation because what does it require for faith? Hearing. Of course, if it's physical hearing. We just had somebody over our house yesterday who was talking about their ability to sign language and how the deaf community is one of the largest unreached people groups in Excambia County. Okay, let's continue. I'm running out of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And many of you are looking at me saying, get on with it. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of, who is from God. Okay, so we receive the spirit from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Uh-oh. So these things are given, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, oh, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are what? Spiritually appraised. Uh-oh, it's starting to get a little confusing here. But who, he who is spiritually appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by one for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let a light shine, shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So here we have this, Light being shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge. There's a knowledge there. So there seems to be this connection with knowing, connection with hearts. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, there it is, you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Mm. So what I'm trying to get at here, ladies and gentlemen, is the Bible seems to indicate that cognition plays a role in the application of God's divine wrath against sin and God's application of Christ's atoning work in those who are saved is evidenced by faith is for those who are able to cognitively understand and respond. Let me say it again. Cognition plays a role in the application of God's divine wrath against sin and God's application of Christ's atoning work is evidenced by faith is for those who are able to cognitively understand and respond. Romans 1, 8 through 18 through 20. Notice here that God reveals His wrath against those to whom God has made Himself plain 
and to those who God who's shown that can be known by him. Those who clearly perceive his eternal power and his divine attributes, but they suppress that knowledge. These people are without excuse. So, hold on, pastor. So God's wrath rests on us all. Yes. But God's wrath seems to be directly applied to those who have the ability to comprehend him and suppress him. So are those who are cognitively incapable of comprehending innocent and sinless? Are those who are incapable of comprehending and, and, and incapable of cognitively comprehending innocent and sinless? What do you have to say? No. It is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is implied is that God gives those without cognitive understanding an excuse to not experience his eternal judgment because they have not the ability to perceive or to know. So the question becomes, how are they saved? Are they saved because they are without excuse? No, 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 no. They are saved by grace through faith that is given to them by a sovereign God who is the God who imputed Adam's sin to us is the selfsame God that imputes Christ's righteousness to us. Because there seems to be a distinction for those who cognitively can't respond by faith and that they are given salvation the same way that we are given salvation. Although we can respond and demonstrate that by faith. I want us to look at some scriptures together. God help me. Turn with me. Are y'all with me? This, hey, listen, this, this doctrine is deep, hard for me to get through in seven weeks. I'm trying to do it in an hour, so y'all stick with me. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. I want to show you some examples of where I believe some scripture helps us see that this is the case. Deuteronomy chapter 1. What is happening? Deuteronomos, second law. Deuter, uh, Deuteronomos, second law. God, uh, the Israelites are being given the law the second time because now they're about to come out of wandering in the wilderness and he's given them the law again, okay? And now in chapter 1, he is going over their history after the Exodus. And I want you to notice in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35, what happens. We'll start in verse 34, and I'm going to read through verse 39. I'm going to go as quick as I can here, ladies and gentlemen. It says, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath, saying, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore, swore to give to your father. Stop. Listen, you've got to know what's happened. So they went to go spy out the land. They were scared. They didn't trust in God. God made them wander in the desert for many years, right? Only two men who saw the land, Caleb and jo jo uh, jo uh, um, Joshua, sorry. Caleb and Joshua wanted to go. The other ten didn't want to go, right? So God punishes them. That's what he's talking about. If you don't know that, get with somebody who does. We'll help you. Verse 36, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his sons, I will give the land on which he has set foot. 
because he has followed the Lord fully. The Lord was angry with me also on your account. Who is he talking to? This is Moses. The Lord was angry with me also on your account saying, Not even you shall enter there, Moses. Joshua the son of Nun who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Verse 39 is extremely inviting for me. Moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your sons who this day, what? Have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Why was their sons able to possess it? Because there seems to be, here what God's doing, He is punishing people for what? Sin. Their actions, right? Their sin. Moses is looking to God's judgment on the previous generation and says the condemnation is on you. It is not on your children of the generation who today have what? No knowledge of good or evil that that were on your parents. So God with his covenanted people in Deuteronomy seems to reveal a time or at least a space for those who have no knowledge between good and evil and they are freed from a temporary condemnation. Yes? Are you with me? So God seems to have in his economy this capacity to not hold those and condemn those who were not, who were not guilty of the sins of their parents. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. Uh, by the way, a verse that many of you know, a popular messianic passage. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be, called, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he, watch, at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So here is a messianic passage that points us, it seems to indicate that there's a time corporally, meaning in the flesh, when one doesn't know what to refuse. So this would beg me the question, what if this state of not knowing what to refuse or what to good, what is evil, what if that state extended throughout life? What if that state was not in the moment of child of, ch- of being a child, but what if that state extended throughout life? And there is a passage in the New Testament, which, which I don't like totally, but I mean, I like the passage, but I, I, I don't like using this, and there's a reason I'll show you that, but it's in uh, John chapter 9, verse 41. <clears throat> this comes after the time where Jesus has just healed the man, the man born blind. That was our first sermon, remember that? At the very end of that, he is affirming his deity, which was the reason for the miracle. We talked about that. And he says something that's quite indicates that a lack of perception may be, indica- may be uh, equated to a lack of accountability. In verse 40, he says, Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not, born, uh, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind you would have no sin. But since you say we see, 
your sin remains. So there seems to be an indication that Jesus is playing off of this idea of blindness. And he says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But because you say you see, your sin remains. So what about those who are spiritually blind? In other other words, those who will never understand the difference between good and evil. There also seems to be an indication that our condemnation is in some way related to our rejection of God's revelation to us. Uh, Stay with me in John, John chapter 12. We're going to move to verse 48. Let's go to verse 47 because it, it fits. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spake is what will judge him at that last day. And also we can go to Romans chapter 1 verse 18. We just studied that, right? This idea of the one who the God has revealed himself and they have suppressed that truth and unrighteousness. So the question is, do I have... Do I have biblical proof that God cognitively, I'm sorry, that the cognitively incapable are able to respond to the presence of God? So listen to my question here. So I've just shared that I believe that cognitive uh, plays with faith in a way. I've shown some instances where God does not hold those who are not cognitively able to uh, um, uh, 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 responsible So, but I said, remember, we said that you are only saved by grace through faith. So do I have biblical evidence that the cognitively incapable are able to respond to the presence of God? Yes, I do. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Verse... 41, my fa- one of my father-in-law's favorite passages. Every Advent, he laughs at this and cries at the same time. <clears throat> when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Why did the baby leap in her womb? Because she was in the presence of who? The baby. Who's the baby? Jesus. Did you understand that? Now, you may be saying, well, okay, the scripture, this scripture says the baby, baby responds to God. The baby was responding to God, Jesus in the flesh. And by the way, the baby had no cognition. We know that. Why? Because where was the baby? In the womb. Okay? But w- chapter 1, verse 15 is very interesting to me. Chapter 1, verse 15 is speaking of John the Baptist. And it says, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will, listen, be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Do I have biblical proof that the cognitively incapable are able to respond to the presence of God and being filled with the Spirit prior to birth? I say yes. Now, I say that, and then I'm going to caution you. Because my caution is this. 
we do not want to make what is narrative always normative. This is a special case, yes? With John the Baptist. But it does indicate an example of where I am trying to get at, an example that can God cause the cognitively incapable to respond to him? I say yes. Furthermore, I would tell you that there are no, and I know this is an argument from the negative, an argument from the silence, but I will, I will speak to argument of uh, not from silence in a moment, but I need you to watch this. There are no biblical examples of infants, nor anyone else with intellectual disability, even a young child under God's judgment after death. Not one time do you see in the Bible that God, that children cognitively incapable or, or, or babies or infants are under God's judgment after death. But there are many examples of the opposite. Let me show you those. Ready? For those of you who are visiting with me for the first time, you're going, does this guy always preach this long? Yes. Turn with me to Job. Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3. Listen, this is Job's lament, right? Brother has just lost everything. His family, his health, he's just lost everything. He is in tears. He's crying. He's cursing, literally cursing the day of his birth. Chapter 3 verse 1 says... Listen to 16 verse through 17. Or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wickedness cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. Now, who is he specifically talking about? Miscarried infants. He's talking about infants that never saw light. But what does he say about where they are? There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. Where do the wicked cease from raging and the weary find their rest? In the presence of God. Number two, Ecclesiastes chapter six. I'm fairly confident after this, that I'm going to have people saying, you've got to give me a short one soon. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Listen to verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. Why? For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name it's covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is what? Better off than what? He. It is better off than he. In other words, that miscarried baby is better off than the man who has, re who has received everything. How can you say he is better off if he ceases to exist? Number three. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. Yep. 2 Samuel. I thought I put all these in order. I'm sorry. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. 
verse 22. All right, so what's happened? David had an affair with Bathsheba, killed Bathsheba's husband, gets pregnant. Right? Nathan comes and rebukes him. He says, he says to uh, David that, uh, that he is living in sin. And then listen to what David says. 2 Samuel 12, verse 22. He had just he has been in grieving because his child is uh, is being uh, is sick. While his child was alive, David was weeping for him. The child dies. Verse twenty, David arises. He washes himself and he begins to eat. Verse twenty one. Listen to what David says. And then the servant said to him, "What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food." And he said, "While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows?" The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Here it is. Listen. Can I bring him back again? Watch. I will go to him and he will not return to me. David is indicating that he is going somewhere where his child is. And that is also where David is going to go. Lastly, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 9 through 10. Yet you are he who brought me from, my, from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. So I want to provide a summary of this, and I am done. Theologically, we would say that Adam's sins are imputed to all humanity, Romans chapter 5. However, it, remember that it is imputed to us by whom? God. He is the one who imputes it to us. Our imputed sin is the basis for God's just, right, and righteous eternal punishment. Death is evidence of God's judgment on all due to Adam's sin. We are eternally punished, however, due to our own sin. Therefore, the grace of God and faith in Christ is required for salvation for all. No one, no child, no, no adult, no one is saved by some other means. All are saved in Christ. And it is through his work that the sin of Adam imputed to all of us is defeated, demonstrated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We are given faith. Those of us who believe in him are given faith by God's grace. Therefore, those who are without cognition are saved by grace through faith in Christ, just like we are whether they ever cognitively respond to it or not. And the God that imputes Adam's sins to us is also the God that imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. So here's the foundation of all I'm telling you. We trust in God as a good judge who alone is aware of each of our cognitive realities. You and I are not. 
I'll never forget having this conversation with uh, Jason and Christy regarding Jace and the salvation of Jace and what it looks like and what it means. And I'll never forget going through some of these things and talking to them about those things. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say this. We need to stop in our futile attempts at trying to determine who is intellectually capable and who is intellectually incapable. You know what we do? We share the gospel with everyone. We pray and we acknowledge that God will graciously save them by faith, even if we don't see evidence of comprehension in the here and now. Because at the end of the day, when I lay my head down at night, we as believers are able to rest in His sovereignty, in His wisdom, in His goodness, in His greatness, and in His grace. And we know that God will always do what is right, and He will always do it for His glory. So what do I do with those who are cognitively incapable of understanding? I preach the gospel. I share the gospel. Because I never know when they're going to cognitively understand or not understand. So I preach the gospel. I share the gospel. I don't know to what extent they can understand or cannot understand. So I preach the gospel. I share the gospel. And to that, I leave the reality of salvation to them as I leave God's reality of salvation of you to him as well because God is good and he is gracious and he is great and he is glorious and so I come into this moment will you please stand to your feet I have definitely went over but I needed to get our heads around this idea we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm not going to belabor this. Here's what I'm going to ask. Hey, listen, how do you respond by faith? You respond by being baptized. The evidence of God working in your heart, that He has placed in your heart a faith to believe in Him, is to be baptized, is to follow through, to confess to the world that you have been baptized. Because you are in here, you are cognitively able to understand what I'm saying if God has given you the spiritual gift to be able to understand that. And so you respond by baptism, and I would call you to that. For those of us, for those of you who are not baptized, I'm sorry, for those of you who are not believers, baptized, I come to you and I ask of you that you do not participate in the Lord's Supper. That's what we're about to do, because I'm reminded. And what does this do for all of us, by the way? You may be asking, I'm not cognitively impaired, well, to the point to where I can't understand. Here's the way this works. Why do we come to the table? Because we're reminded of our own disability and salvation. And we're reminded that we were in need of His body and His blood to be saved. So we come and we confess our sins. Let us spend a few moments in that. If you're an unbeliever, you may walk up to the table, you may watch, you may do all that. We're asking you not to participate. If you're a believer, you're going to exit out, come, grab the elements, and then walk back, okay? Uh, let us pray uh, very briefly. Father, we come before you and we ask of you, to do your work in our hearts. We thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for this truth that I am not saved by my works. For God, if I were saved by my works, I would be in a desperate, desperate situation. 
God, if I were saved based upon my faith, based upon my ability to muster up my faith in some way, shape, or form, in order to believe in you and to be justified by you, God, I would be in a desperate, desperate situation. But God, the faith that you have given me, I am to work out. I am to work out my salvation with fear and trembling because I know it's you who is at work in me, both to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And praise God for that. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving those of us who are here who call you by by your name, who call you our Father and our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our King. Forgive us, Jesus, for where we have failed you. Forgive us. And may we respond to this by partaking in these elements, reminded of your goodness and grace. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. And all God's people say, Amen.